This is the Modern Domestique podcast, where each episode focuses on a different aspect of modern home economics. It's all about exploring a way of life that enhances our community and environment from where it all begins, in the home. I'm Stacy Keating, and this episode is a special collection of highlights from Season 1. I was so inspired by all the conversations I had last season, and I really enjoyed reflecting on those chats while I was editing this episode. Season 2 is coming out in a couple of weeks, so I wanted to put these highlights together to recap what this podcast is all about. My main hope is that this collection encourages a new look at what modern home economics can be, and that these interviews empower you to make home economics your own, in your home, in your community. Also, just a little word on how this episode works. The highlights will play in chronological order, and you'll know the beginning of the next set of quotes because the theme music will play. I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed putting it together. I envision home economics in the future to be more community-based. So, you know, let's say you don't have any interest in learning how to sew, but I love to sew and you love to cook. Then we can create a community that is sustainable and using all the principles of home economics without having to learn everything. Um, you know, because we do lead busy lives and we need to have a balance. So at, through my time in France, I really learned how to slow down and enjoy things. And I think that that really influenced my um, sort of want of learning how to cook and learning how to sew and learning how to connect more with people around me. Um, you know, whether it be asking my friends to show me how to knit or by learning how to make, um, you know, some food to take to a party that, you know, the French would be like, whoa, what's this? You know, like, it's my American take on this or whatever. Um, and that all ties back to home economics and learning how to live slowly and enhance your com community through that. Yeah, and I, and I really like the fact, too, that anyone can be a modern domestique, you know. Um, in their own way. It's, it doesn't have to be exactly what I put on the blog, you know, just because I put up, you know, DIY fizzy bath fun time, you know, <laughs> doesn't mean that everybody has to make that in order to be their version of a modern domestique. Anyone can be a modern domestique if they're doing anything on, you know, learning any new home economics related thing, which is a huge range of things, you know, whether it be broth making or sewing or... Um, dusting behind picture frames, you know, or gardening or whatever. You know, if you look back in Europe at the first visual signs of food that they would serve outside, it was the broth pot. The broth pot was always the way they and then you know they would put bits of things in it based on what they had now we do all vegan broths all vegetable broths we're into high mineral potassium broth right so what exactly does that mean for someone who doesn't know so really there's two types of broths and um you can mix the two together and make a high mineral vegetable bone broth or you can make just sort of a bone broth, or you can make just a vegetable broth. And although we're not at all opposed to bone broths, um, the beauty of bone broths is a slow, long simmer, 
that will extract sort of this collagen, mm -hmm. basically, that is this gelatinous substance that is great for the body, great for the, um, you know, intestinal lining. It's just a super wonderful component of extracting from bones. It's great for your skin. Um, it can be really healing. Um, we went the other direction, and we're all about drink the garden. Yeah, so great. we're just about vegetables. Um, the power of vitamins and minerals and micronutrients that alkalize the body, nourish the body, uh, stimulate the immune system. So our broth is cooked in large organic batches, uh, 40 gallons at a time. And we put all this beautiful organic non-GMO produce into this beautiful kettle. And we simmer it for a long time to extract, but not boil so that we don't lose anything. And then we remove all the vegetables and we season that stock. So we have savory vegetable stock. And you just drink it and it just feels like health. It I know does. you. Yeah, I love it. And I, I love mixing it too with, um, you know, a, a soup that I'm making or something like with the Southwestern one that tastes like a taco, like you're drinking a taco, you're making, you know, a Mexican inspired soup. Um, with that is really good too so you can use it as a base which I really like as yeah well. yeah absolutely so really people use it for cleansing they use it to have with a meal to replace a meal mm -hmm. a lot of people who are gonna have surgeries or um, dental work mm -hmm. I mean it's really remarkable the multi uses for it and then as well you look like a brilliant soup maker if you use it as a base mm. um, so we're we're having a lot of fun with it uh, we love watching people drink this broth. We see the alkalizing effect. Um, life can be so acidic. Mm -hmm. Our food choices can often, you know, be a little acidifying to the system. Mm -hmm. And broth is just this kind of great alkalizer. I always find this interesting. People always talk about free radicals mm -hmm. and how, oh, we have to avoid free radicals and free radicals are going to be the culprit that get, brings us down. But the truth is, is the most free radicals we produce are from digestion and respiration. Mm. So just by the act of being alive, we're producing free radicals. Within ourselves. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons why I think mm. that of all the fads and everything that go around, one of the things that have really stood the test of time, and I don't, I don't like this, but it's true, <laughs> is that as you age, if you minimize caloric intake, you do tend, and I think it's because you have less free radicals. The less your digestion has to labor. Mm. I mean, obviously, we don't want to be malnourished. Right. We want to nourish ourselves. But to overeat is that, oh, that irritating thing where it just produces so much more free radical activity. And inflammation as well. Exactly. Um, especially if you're not eating good foods. That yeah, are, good point. Yeah, that are good for your body and that your body likes. I know. Yeah. That is huh. so true. Vitamin Cottage, which is in Colorado and some of the states around us, Natural Grocers, they put a lot of effort into putting, like, we get this locally. You can go to their farm if you want to and go to their production factory and see exactly what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, which I think is so important for getting people aware of what they're buying rather than just, like, looking at a recipe and saying, I want to make this, and then, like, hunting down some 
food that's not in season to make that recipe. Right. Then, you know, maybe by going to someplace like Natural Grocers, it's like we only stock things that are in season because we get everything organically and mostly local. Right. It puts that little seed into people's head like, well, I guess I'm not going <laughs> to try and make a strawberry pie in the middle of winter because yeah, I that's mean, I think crazy. that's one of the best things I learned in macrobiotics was seasonal eating. Mm. Because some people get so bored with food because literally in the household they eat the same thing year-round. And to really look at what's actually growing and, you know, to just live your life seasonally, I think was one of the greatest gifts I learned. There's an amazing book called Staying Healthy with the Seasons Mm. by Elson Haas. Mm. He's an old acupuncturist. I think he is. I think he's actually a medical doctor. (laughs) But he wrote this amazing book that just talks about the way the body the way the organs function during different parts of the year. It's all based on Chinese medicine. Really amazing read about seasonal eating, seasonal living. Mm -hmm. And we all innately do that. You know, we want to take more baths and hot baths. And And drink more broth. Exactly. (laughs) Back to broth. Yes. Exactly. The maker movement is spreading, and it's spreading in libraries as well as schools and pretty much everywhere in between. It's not just books anymore, it's absolutely about experiences, it's about playing, it's about learning something new, and, uh, and I think that there's a real power behind that in terms of what we have the potential to do here. So it's really exciting to think about where this is going, and, uh, and just the idea of, of the community being such an invested part of the space as well, so it's really here to reflect them, it's here to reflect Um, the public's interest, what they want more of, we're going to deliver. So there are definitely ways that we can, um, you know, listen to to what people want to to see and uh, we'll do our best to make it happen. Yeah, yeah, and it's such a great um, space to be learning into, not only for adults, but also for kids because, you know, home ec and shop doesn't necessarily exist in almost all schools now. Um, So, you know, what a great way for kids to come in and be inspired by, you know, adults teaching the classes, but also adults coming in and being like, I never got to experience this. Yeah, and there's this cross-pollination of learning that's happening across generations as well, which is really exciting. And I think that that's something that's very specific to this informal learning platform of being the public library and sort of expanding on and extending how we think about resources and what it means to provide access to information for our patrons. There's very little risk in coming in and exploring a new craft here in the space. I mean, if you just have the slightest interest in, in checking out um, weaving or uh, doing something on a 3D printer, it's, it's worth it to, to give it a shot because you may find that you have an amazing opportunity to either expand on your existing skills or you may discover that you want to make a project that requires those tools later on. So having the exposure to it is really, really helpful and important, I think. And a lot of the equipment is kind of expensive, and so it's not very feasible to to buy this stuff yourself. Um, You know, for things like the laser cutter or the CNC router machine, um, those are not pieces of equipment that you see in, in traditional garages or yeah. shop spaces. So yeah, these are sure. really These are really special um, and powerful tools. And, uh, and so we have the ability to, to teach those skills uh, to the community. And so the idea of learning a trade skill at the library is actually possible. Um, expanding, you know, what you can do in terms of, you know, if you're trying to find a job. 
And then for people who aren't in Boulder or in this area, are makers does, do makerspaces similar to this exist in other libraries that they could check out? Yeah, there's lots of libraries across the country that have makerspaces in them. They may not have the same equipment as us, but the ethos is the the right one, essentially. Yes, so the maker them. movement is spreading, and it's spreading in libraries as well as schools and pretty much everywhere in between. Um, so you will see makerspaces that are membership-based, and those are really great as well because you get certain perks that come along with that, like 24-hour access to, to some of the equipment, and, and that's really exciting. Um, but with our space, we do think that it is breaking some new ground in terms of what libraries can offer and really rethinking what it means to be a library and, and the resources that we have available to our patrons. The truth is, people have been shopping at markets for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So this is not a new way, it's a very, very old way to shop. You know, you think of all the micronutrients in the soil and all of the chemicals in the soil that contribute to flavor. And you don't have that if you're just pumping nitrogen into the soil. I know I've heard the arguments that from a scientific standpoint, there's no difference, and yet we can taste the difference. Yeah, and I'm sure our body chemically can sense the difference as well. I would think so. I, I just know that when I buy local, I first I love what I'm eating because it just tastes really great, but also it has so much more meaning to me that it actually nourishes me not just on a physical level, but that level of me that interacts with the community. Yeah. And that's what I find so valuable about it. And, and that's why the kids' programs, I think, are helpful. Mm -hmm. Because what we want to do is normalize market shopping. We want to normalize buying from a local farmer. I feel like the biggest single advantage of local agriculture is that it, it really ties us together as a community. That there's something about food that is uniting yeah. in its own way or grounding in its own way and I've been I think about this a lot this you know you have light and heat from the sun mm -hmm. and then we live on this ball of dirt yeah and the sun meets this ball of dirt and it manifests in this these like pockets of energy uh, and that are our food yeah. you know, whether it's carrots or it's lettuce or grain whatever it is and then we live that's we remove that pocket of energy and ingest it and it becomes part of us our energy yeah right yeah you really are what you eat i think what he's saying here is so important because it gets right to the nitty-gritty of the fact that our body actually takes the food we put in and turns it into not only energy for us to survive off of but also actually turns it into the cells that make up our whole body this energy that he's talking about sustains us on a cellular level, which is such a powerful argument for eating locally and seasonally. And for millions of years, we've had a connection, a real clear connection to that cycle. Yeah. Except the last 150 years, you know, General Mills and PepsiCo and Kraft and Nabisco and Nestle and, you know, the manifestations that have happened over those years have all told us, don't worry about it. Yeah. We got your back. You get your hamburger helper. Yeah. And you don't, the food system is not anything you need to think about. I think there's a big part about food nourishes us and when we're nourished, we feel safe and when we're safe, 
we're open with one another and we're more willing to not be defensive yeah, and so share a little bit more. And I, you may have heard me cite the Harvard Business Review study no. before that they found that negotiations that happen over a meal are 12% more profitable for both parties. That's so interesting. And it's part of that, because a true negotiation involves vulnerability, because mm -hmm. you have to tell somebody what you need. Yeah. And when food is involved, people tend to be more open with one another, rather than afraid that they're going to get fleeced. Yeah. Which really kind of brings us to this idea of seasonality. Yeah. Um, and the thing that I've learned, which I'm sure many people have known before me, is that like the saying goes, I can't miss you if you're never gone. Yeah. There's something that's really kind of luxurious about waiting for a crop to come in. That's true. And, you know, like this winter, we were just, my wife and I are like, man, we need greens. I, you know, where are the greens? I want the greens. I know, another, oh, another root vegetable. Yeah. But then again, at the end of the green season, we feel the same way about greens in it's some true. way. But I love that anticipation. And we, when we got our hands on the first greens that before the market opened, some of the market, the farm stands were already open. Yeah. When we got our hands on those, it was, it was like yes. So sweet. Yeah. yeah. The markets have a. Well, uh, very much what we call a baskets and bonnets reputation mm -hmm. that it's a kind of a cute shopping experience and you know it's an elitist affair right. that kind of thing uh, and the truth is people have been shopping at markets for thousands and thousands and thousands of years so this is not a new way it's a very very old way to shop and the prices are the biggest complaint we hear is prices. The prices are so high. And my typical response to that is if you take a tomato or a piece of produce that was grown in another country where somebody's getting paid a dollar an hour and environmental controls are significantly lower and they're living 40 to a room in a bunkhouse, that's going to be a little bit cheaper than growing the same thing in Boulder County, paying a reasonable wage, meeting all the environmental standards, and having the cost of living in Boulder County, or most of the U.S. for that matter. Yeah, it's true. But it's selected with intention, the variety, and it's grown with intention, and it is field-ripened and hand-picked, and often hand-weeded, so they're not using pesticides and herbicides. At least for many of the farmers, that's true. Yeah. So it's a it, it's a totally different ballgame. Having that perfectly ripe tomato that has yeah. all of those bursting flavors is kind of a priceless experience, and the experience of sharing that with your family or friends, like taste this amazing thing, yeah. is pretty priceless as well. It, it is, and that's one of the things I think that's so cool about Homec. Yeah. and the idea of teaching people to cook and even the other activities that are involved in home ec. The, the ability to actually provide for people we care about, mm -hmm. whether they're our friends or they're our family or co-workers, yeah. it's really powerful it really to is. be able to cook something or fix something. Uh, to be functional in a way that, that supports people is really, really cool on those few opportunities that, you know, I run into, like, my oldest daughter's friends who 
taking somebody out on a date or something like that, I always say, bring them to the farmer's market. It's such a better date than going to a restaurant and proving that you can spend a lot of money. It's so true. Prove that you know something about produce. That's yeah. pretty sexy. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. And, if, you know, and go a week earlier and, and talk to the farmer so he knows Get your name tips. and then yeah. kind of drop his name and be like... Hey Jason, what's up? Man, I really like that kale. Well, you know, you're right on spot on about that. Yeah, and, yeah, that's so know. funny. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Look like a man and with in the know. Yeah, right? or a lady in the know. Yeah, yeah for right. sure. Yeah, and there's all the prepared foods there too, so you can yeah. like sit down and have a meal together. Yes, exactly. Grab a beer, have a meal, yeah. chat, but connect with the farmers. Yeah, connect with each other and the local system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Be a yeah. renaissance person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in high school, I just remember wanting to sew a lot, and I loved home ec. And in those days, home ec was taught with a bit of everything. It had sewing, cooking, child care, interior design, crafty stuff. Probably the thing that I did that was closest to what you're doing now with your home ec <laughs> is, was a class called Country Living. And in that class we did weaving, canning, tending berries out in the field, uh, farming type things, um, candle making, lots of DIY stuff is what we call it now. Yeah. But it's probably the closest that we got in those days to be sustainable, mm. like you're doing now. Yeah. I remember a class called uh, Meal Management, and we had to plan meals, and part of it was getting everything on the table at the same time and managing what you were doing and staying within a budget and mm. all these kinds of family life things. And so it was really geared toward taking care of your family mm. and knowing um, things to do that would be economical but yet healthy and delicious and all that kind of thing and sewing your own clothes and it, you know yes it starts out with the little things mending but um, moves on into taking care of a family someday mm -hmm. and did you find that a lot of people you were coming into contact with as you got older, um, were asking you to do things for them because they didn't have a home ec background. Yeah. <laughs> so even back then there was a lot of people that were like, how do you know how to do this? That might not have been able to take home ec. Yes. And as I was teaching in elementary, I had a lot of your friends' parents want me to teach their kids home ec stuff on the side because it wasn't being offered at the high school level mm -hmm. anymore. And I just couldn't do everything. Yeah. But I saw the need, and in my heart, I wanted to start my own home ec teaching business, mm. which I think even today would be something that would be valuable. Yeah. And well, obviously, I see the value in that, too, yes. as the modern domestique. <laughs> I know, but you need to start your own school, and I can just see it. It would be awesome. Yeah. I'll come yeah. and help you. There are plans in the works for different things, <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, so that's it's interesting that not only... Is it is it nowadays that, um, you know, maybe people don't really have a home economics background, but it's also, it was back then, and maybe even back then they weren't getting it from their parents or grandparents even, too. Right. And I was seeing more and more of that 
as years went by from the time when I was growing up to the time you were growing up that those skills weren't being as taught as much because families were getting busier mm-hmm. and the skills weren't there to teach mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. so they weren't being passed along in my generation I think there was a lot of a lot more of passing on from one generation to the next of things that you knew how to do yeah because when I was a little girl my mother had me making soufflés and mm. Baked Alaskas and things like that. <laughs> that is super complicated. <laughs> so I look back and I think, wow, she really gave me an education at home. Yeah. Which yeah. I think was what started me down the home ec road. Yeah. And I think that times have changed too because it's it's hard to find the space for it, not even necessarily the time to teach, even if you know how to do something to teach someone else or to learn a new skill. Um, you know, and, and by space, I mean, like, you know, rather than watching your favorite TV show at Mm -hmm. night or something, Mm -hmm. um, to instead be in the kitchen learning how to do whatever, you know, a quiche even, or, Mm -hmm. you know, a frittata, like something that's not a baked Alaska, (laughs) (laughs) you know, something that's maybe more like something you would make on a regular basis. Um, and it's, it's hard, like you have to put energy into finding that space to learn new things and teach new things. Well, and I think priorities have changed through the years. Things that we used to think were important then, Mm. people don't see as being as important now. Yeah, it's true. Their focus is more on the, like you say, watching TV or iPhone or Facebook or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you don't even think about, oh, I'd really like to learn how to do whatever. Mm -hmm that might be stretching your boundaries. Yeah, yeah, and the convenience of everything too now. So rather than right. like mending clothes, you just throw it away and go and buy <laughs> a new thing, you know, because which, it's cheap and accessible, which yeah, on a lot yeah. of levels is not yeah. good. Um, you know, for like the people that are making those cheap clothes, like mm-hmm. the life that they're leading at, right. you know, like 10 cents a day or whatever they're making is not a good a good life. And, you know, by supporting that, well, by buying clothes, you're supporting that in a way. Um, but also contributing to the landfills and, you know, like all the tons of textile waste that end up in mm-hmm. landfills now and, and stuff like that. And, um, and then the nutrition aspect of not knowing how to cook, you know, a frittata, something mm-hmm. that's easy. Well, and um, eating a lot of fast food and yeah. going out and it's unhealthy and all the problems that are seen in children these yeah. days because yeah. of and, their diets. Yeah. And a lot of people don't like make that correlation because they mm-hmm. don't have a knowledge of nutrition from home economics, because I think it did get a bad rap, you know, like you have to dust behind your picture frames and you have to set your table exactly like this. And this is how you be the perfect housewife and like all this stuff, you know, which, which is, is really eye rolling. (laughs) And like, it makes me want to roll my eyes and, and like nowadays it's like, no way. Yeah. You know, like everything must be dusted to this like level and like all this stuff, you know, which in a sense, like spring cleaning, I think is important, Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, you know, for your health, like making sure that everything is clean, but there's also an aspect of it's like, come on. Well, generations make a difference. And I think what you're talking about goes back to Victorian era when everything was a certain way and proper and. And then as the years went by and it, it came down through the generations, you know, even the 50s, you see the Susie Homemaker, uh, perfect housewife in the little apron mm-hmm. and, and husband comes home and here's your slippers, dear, and mm-hmm. here's dinner and women weren't working as much and yeah. or at all. And um, I guess as much. And so then women started going in the work field and 
the whole dynamic of a family has changed. So what she's talking about here I think is so important, and it really encompasses what I'm trying to accomplish with the modern domestique. She's talking about the evolution of home economics and how it evolved to meet the demands of specific eras. So, you know, it was different in the Victorian era versus the 50s versus the 70s versus today, right? So how do we, as modern domestiques, want home economics to look for today? I think that's so important and exciting to be a part of that evolution. It doesn't have to be one way or the other. We can make it be however we want it to be to meet our needs today. But I think one thing about home ec is you start out with the basics and then you keep pushing yourself to new things that you've never done before. Yeah, and I think it's okay if you don't want to do that. You know, like even if... All you want to do is learn how to mend your clothes. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that that's fine, you know. And if you have a friend that wants to sew you clothes, then that's cool too. Mm-hmm. Or you can find a local place that, you know, puts a lot of effort into finding clothes that, like, where the clothes they have are coming from and stuff like that. You know, I think that there's ways around that that you don't have to know how to do everything and you don't have to push yourself to do everything. But you can surround yourself with people yeah. that can help you accomplish a more sustainable life. Right, right. Waldorf kindergartens are really based on um, what home life would be like if you back in the day. Mm. Stayed home, so they bake and they garden and they everything paint and they color and they, you know, play and that kind of things. And they're doing many things with their hands. Boys and girls do everything. So yeah. um, if it's you know stained glass, if it's copper work, if it's blacksmithing, if it's bookbinding, if it's crochet, everyone does it. So what exactly is like the foundation of Waldorf? It's K through 12, right? It is. It's pre-K through 12. And um, it's based on the um, philosophy of Rudolf Steiner, who was the founder, and on his perspective his worldview perspective, it's called anthroposophy. And the kids are never taught that, and the parents aren't expected to know about that, but that lies behind everything. And it really is about um, developmental education. So what's appropriate for the younger child isn't appropriate for the older child and vice versa. So it's looking at, um, the basics would say, it's looking at these kind of seven-year cycles of development so the zero through seven, and the picture of that is really more of the pre-K and K, and then your seven to fourteen is really the lower school, and then your fourteen to twenty-one starts in the high school years. Wow. And so, um, a lot of people might, um, how do I put it? They come to Waldorf education. They come in the kindergarten, and it's beautiful, and aesthetics is a huge part of. Foundation of Waldorf education. Yeah, I'm and, looking around your yeah, classroom, and, and it's so beautiful. And all the classrooms are so beautiful and um, colorful and beautiful, and how important that is in our lives. Um, and they might kind of have this idea of my little one, but we're not trying to keep them little ones forever, so that when they're going into the different grades and the, as they're getting older, the expectations are not that they're, you know, treated like a kindergartner. Yeah. And vice versa, we don't expose the younger kids to things that older kids can be exposed to. We um, 
we strive for families to be media free, you know, exclusively in the lower grades, and then some things perhaps introduced later on. But that just keeps kids from being exposed to things that are really developmentally not appropriate and not yeah. even hard for some of us to comprehend as adults in the world. Right? So true, yeah. So, same for the kids. So that's a big. That's another component of it. And of course. Elevator version, but there really is no elevator version. It's a very long and deep tradition. Yeah, and lots of things. But just with regard to the handwork, so when we in first graders, first graders learn to knit, and they mm -hmm. really are old enough, developmentally able to do that. It's a rhythmic, two-handed activity, really, and so um, and it uses both sides of the brain, right? Of course, yeah. crossing the midline. It's doing all these kinds of things that are helping them. Um, aside from part of the piece with handwork is um, how it develops the brain capacities, which is something that more modern studies have revealed, although Steiner actually referred to it back in the 1920s as well. Wow. Um, you know, not in the same way, but mm -hmm. that he recognized the, the difference. And so... Um, so first and second graders knit, third graders crochet, and that's kind of, crochet also is very much a two-handed activity in my opinion. Um, but then they're using their dominant hand for the crochet hook. Mm -hmm. And first through third grade we have fat yarn and, you know, size J, size 10, you know, <laughs> crochet hooks and knitting needles, and they're still quite um, big. Yeah. And then, you know, once they're getting to that age of around nine, then fourth grade, do the, they do cross-stitch, and the cross-stitch is then much more um, defined, much thinner um, yarn, needle, yeah. so um, much more, um, they have much more ability to differentiate, and, and they have more of a capacity for the finer motor skills. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, they do mirror image, um, they do a we make it into a pencil case, but it could be made into different things. And they mirror the sides. Actually, we do four quadrants that they mirror. But that's also something that they wouldn't have been able to do as a younger child. Mm -hmm. They're able to do now. Yeah. And um, then in fifth grade, they do four needle knitting. And in sixth and seventh, they do hand sewing. And in eighth grade, they do machine sewing. Wow. And we use the treadle machines here, not every welder does mm -hmm. but that's a nice thing because it's you know your feet and your hands it's a little more whole body activity than an electric sewing machine might be yeah i yeah. have never had the experience of sewing oh. on a treadle machine well it's traditional the first day you start to complain a lot about it so. <laughs> <laughs> i'd imagine your calf muscles get pretty strong <laughs> yeah yeah there's an occasional tears but really for all that we do not so much Good. but yeah but you know just trying it again and, and, and being okay um, with and being okay with it yeah. and then there's also a whole aspect of helping each other you know I might show the first couple of kids I don't know what you know changing colors or weaving in tails or whatever it is mm -hmm. and then the next couple of kids they get helped by by classmates so there's this whole social piece about it yeah um and also if you think of kind of like quilting bees and that sort of thing how mm -hmm. Crafts also often always had a social element to it. You yeah, know, so true. how people raise the barn and, you know, 
um, I don't know what, butchered the deer and all that <laughs> yeah. kind of stuff. You know, it was group activity, and you relied on each other, and you shared with each other. So there's that component of it, and, you know, there's just like a lot of pieces about yeah, and I imagine too that it builds confidence in kids to oh, yeah. try something new and be able and not to yeah, be afraid absolutely. of failing or trying again. Absolutely, or, that is also a big thing because I mean I know adults who are afraid to try things yeah. new or don't know how to. You know, I had a friend say to me once, "I just I don't know how to do anything. I just watch TV at night. I really don't know how to do anything." She did later on go on to learn how to do some things, but yeah. that that could if you haven't gotten used to trying new things and doing them and failing at them or not failing at them or, you know, building your expertise, sure. you might be afraid to do things. So I think kids here, whether they go on to um, rely on all their background of crafts or mm -hmm. not, that they're not afraid to try, you know, something else. So like when I teach first graders to knit, like how, how do you teach a class of 36-year-olds to knit? Yeah. Here's how. Um, I get all the older kids to come in and help. And so I'll have, you know, eight helpers mm. from fourth through twelfth grade come in and, you know, each with two or three, and, and we build on it. And so it yeah. actually hasn't taken that long to learn to knit. But then, you know, mm. that's how I do it. Because, yeah, that's such a great you know, idea. The big kids love to come and help the little kids, and the little kids love to have big kids. Yeah. And, um... Yeah, yeah. But it, it kind of fosters a sense of like, oh, I'm not going to go and hang out with those little ones, you, you know. know. Oh, and no, they love the little ones. Yeah, yeah, that's so great. <laughs> and then do. talk about a skill that can kind of be related on later in life, you yeah. know, like training new employees at a new company right. or, you know, all sorts yeah. of things where you can learn how to explain things to people. Because a lot of people, I don't think, yeah. know really how to do that until yeah. they're in the position. They're like, wait, you don't get this? <laughs> right, right. And then they have to learn how to break it down and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's really great. When I took home ec back in junior high and Casey, now middle school, they had this huge, as I remember it, huge room with all these different kitchen stations. And so you'd have a group of four or five kids, and I, I you know, I don't know what they have now. But there were, I think, like eight different kitchen stations. Wow, each know, with their own, like, oven, oven and, and, and every sink and the whole gig, yeah. right? And they had a huge... I took wood shop. They had a huge wood shop, like two different rooms and, you know, lathes and all that kind of stuff. When I was in junior high, I don't know if they had those things any longer yeah, or not. Um, you know, so I've been told at Boulder High, maybe it's not true. You know, when I went there, there was an art department and mm -hmm. an art building and people took photography and wood shop and painting and ceramics and all kinds of things. Yeah. And I was told at one point that they were down to three different offerings at Boulder High. Wow. Um, I don't know if that's still true or yeah, I mean, whatever, I, but, you know. I wouldn't doubt it, yeah. Yeah, so it's, um, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's a bummer. It's a bummer. <laughs> it's unfortunate the kids don't get that kind of exposure. It's you know? true, Because, yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, we had singing and, you know, yeah, and even not as many offerings as here, but you know, here it re is really you know all of these subject classes: choir and gardening and handwork and strings and practical arts. I mean, they're important to us. They're as important as a math or a language arts class. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and, yeah. and it makes sense, especially when you put it in the context of building confidence and mm -hmm. you know, letting students kind of try so many different things out so that way as they get older, they can be like, okay, I, I, I know how to sew, but it's not necessarily my career choice uh -huh. or you know, whatever, so that way maybe it helps, I don't know, making decisions as to what you want to do later in life. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or what you have capacity. It's building capacities. Mm -hmm. It's basically yeah. the deal. Yeah. So, and how you use those things later. Mm -hmm. You know, lots of people use. I mean, I have lots of people who come back and, you know, thought of me when they bought their 26 year old son a sewing machine for his birthday. And he always says costumes for him and his wife for Halloween. And, you know, I mean, like all kinds of stuff <laughs> like that. Happens, so cool, you know. Yeah. I just I recently had someone who I think it, he's about twenty now who came back because he and his friend are hand sewing leather satchels and they wanted me to look at it and and give them constructive criticism, you know. And I never would have thought he's going to be the kid who, yeah. you know, takes up a hand. Not that he's taking it up as a career; he's going to college, but. You know, mm -hmm. that he's doing something, like he had an idea, and he yeah. could make that idea happen. And, yeah. And for now, that's great. Yeah, that's so cool. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Modern Domestique podcast, and a big thanks to all my guests from last season. To learn more about anyone that you heard from today, head over to the Modern Domestique website for links and more information. If you like the podcast, make sure to tell a friend and subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please make sure to leave a rating or a review so that other people can find this podcast too. As always, I'd love to hear your takeaways from today's episode, so please make sure to stay in touch on the website, Facebook, or Instagram. Thanks again for tuning in, and have a very modern domestic day.